You are listening to the Sermons Podcast of First Baptist Church, Mount Washington. Well, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9, we're continuing our uh, study and to Paul's letter to the church in Rome And uh, this is a new section of Paul's letter, chapters 9, 10, and 11. And uh, so what I hope to do today is to kind of give a little bit of an overview of 9, 10, and 11, and then talk about these first uh, five verses uh, that are before us this morning. And uh, so Romans chapter 9, verses 1 through 5 uh, is our text. Let's look at it together. Paul writes, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord, again, we thank you. Uh, for this wonderful day to be able to come before you and, and to study your word and to worship. And um, we thank you for these sweet blessings. And we pray, Lord, now in the power of your spirit that you would illumine our hearts and minds to understand uh, that we would willingly receive um, what you would have to say to us today. And I pray that you would use me as your servant. I pray that you would increase and I would decrease. And your word would go forth. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this is a new section in uh, Paul's letter. And uh, if we certainly didn't see the transition between chapters 8 and 9, we certainly feel the the transition with Paul's change of tone. I was thinking uh, as I was preparing this that if you were out and about a week ago from this Thursday, the Thursday before uh, Christmas, uh, the temps were in that afternoon were quite uh, pleasant. You may have gotten in your car to come home from work with it feeling a little bit balmy outside, uh, but by the time you got home from work and you went back outside, the things had remarkably changed, how cold uh, it was by the time we got home. And the transition between Romans 8 and 9 is a bit uh, like that because uh, chapter 8 is uh, f- filled kind of with the, the sunshine and, and warmth of God's uh, promises to us, his incredible love that we've, we've sung about today, the assurance of God's unfailing love to those who are in Christ. Uh, but then suddenly here in chapter 9, it's like Paul's tone has drastically changed, much, much like Kentucky weather uh, drastically changes. In chapter 9, his tone is suddenly one of sorrow and grief. And, and, and so clearly there's been a transition that, that's happened in his writing. 
Now, there's a great discussion among Bible scholars about what exactly Paul is transitioning to here in Romans 9, 10, and 11. What is the theme of uh, Paul in, in this section? Why does Paul feel compelled, uh, so compelled, uh, to talk about uh, what we're going to, to be looking at. Everything uh, from, uh, there's all kinds of differing thoughts about this. Everything from, from Romans 9, 10, 11 is the main message of Romans all the way to uh, the possibility that this is just a parenthesis, if you will, and that if we uh, skipped over it and went on to chapter 12, uh, we would do just fine. And, and so there's all of those different extremes, and I don't think it's either or any of, of, of those particular uh, extremes, I do think that is tightly connected to Paul's message, to what he's been telling us already for, for all along. Uh, you remember back, hopefully you do, in chapter 1, uh, perhaps a memory verse of, of Romans, uh, the book of Romans, chapter 1, verse 16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And you remember from that, that point, he has been setting forth this incredible gospel that there, that there is one glorious way of salvation to everyone who believes. That there, there, there are not two different plans for two different peoples. That, there, that this gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. It's for all. Uh, which is important because Paul will say in Romans 3, all have sinned, right? All have fallen short. All are under the wrath of God. All are condemned. But here's the good news for us. The righteousness of God has been revealed through Jesus Christ. And so Paul has been laying out the glories of this incredible gospel uh, for us all the way through chapter 8. But there's been a question, there's a, there's a question from Romans 1.16 that has not been answered yet in his writing. And uh, the question is, if the gospel is for the Jew first, Romans 1.16, and then for the Greek, then why have so many, why are so many of the Jews rejecting the gospel? Uh, how is it that the Israelites who were the recipients of, of the great promises of God in the Old Testament, were by and large rejecting the good news of the gospel. And then how is it that so many Gentiles are believing it? And in comparison, many more Gentiles coming into uh, the promises of God. We, we might imagine someone saying to Paul, you know, at this point in his letter, as, as we've seen several times, you're raising their hand, okay, Paul, uh, we get it, uh, you're really excited about this gospel here in Romans, but, but don't you think you're getting a bit carried away? I mean, you, you, you've been talking about these glories, you say that God finishes what he starts, right? That uh, Romans 8.30, those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. In other words, when God starts salvation, he's going to bring it all the way home uh, to glory. But you say that, Paul, but what about the Jews? It's kind of a glaring issue. God called them in the Old Testament, didn't he? But most of them are rejecting the gospel. Are you sure, Paul, that the gospel is really the power of God for salvation? Do you see the problem? Nod your head with me this morning. I won't force you to say amen because 
uh, but you were going to have to keep each other awake today, right? Because you stayed up and watched the ball and I didn't. An even bigger question behind this, perhaps, is the question of the faithfulness of God. Um, If God promised that Israel would be his people, and yet the majority of them are not believing in Christ, does this mean, perhaps, that the promise and the mercy and the power of God is failing? So I think the purpose of these chapters, chapters 9, 10, and 11, or the theme, is really a defense of the gospel. Uh, Or you might even say it's a defense of God. This is Paul explaining to us, uh, here is a justification of God and how he works with man. This is is, uh, uh, Paul's way of harmonizing the Old Testament with the New Testament. And it's his way of showing the eternal and glorious consistency of God and how he works out his amazing and glorious purposes in all of our lives, Jew and Gentile alike. And I think this is supported by the closing doxology. If you look over to the end of chapter 11, the end of the section, here is the response that these chapters uh, will leave us with when we're finished. Romans eleven thirty three, 33, Paul writes, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. Who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been in his counselor, or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. This is where it's ending up. And so Romans 9.11, look, is about the ways of God, how unsearchable and inscrutable His ways are, how He's working out His saving purposes in the world today. If we were to outline it, it's kind of difficult, but, but we might think of it like this. The big question of chapter 9 is, has God's word failed? Has it failed? Because it seems that way with the Jews not responding to the gospel. Or more generally, generally we could frame it like this. How is anyone saved? And Paul gives the answer in chapter 9. And we'll see it. Uh, The big question in chapter 10 is uh, why is Israel not saved? Why why are they rejecting the gospel? And so if chapter 9 is, is ask, or answering how anybody is saved, chapter 10 is answering how anybody is lost. And the answer to that highlights the responsibility of, of man to repent and believe. And so you have God's sovereignty in chapter 9. You have man's responsibility to respond, to repent, to believe the gospel in chapter 10. Both of those things are taught by Paul. And then the question of chapter 11 is, okay, has God fully rejected his people, the Israelites? I mean, how is he going to keep his promises to them that he made in the Old Testament? And how in the world is it that God's going to bring the Gentiles included into the people of God? And so Paul answers that in chapter 11. So that's a brief roadmap. And the answer to all of these things will lead us, he says, to the praise and glory for the unsearchable and inscrutable way of God. What a blessing we get to study that, church. Amen? Um, Now, one of the things that we notice 
right away in these opening verses, I've drawn your attention to it, is, is uh, that these issues are not merely theoretical or intellectual or, th- or even theological for Paul. Like what he's going to be talking about here in chapters 9, 10, 11, this, this is not dry uh, classroom, ivory tower kinds of stuff that only certain elites need to know and, and that doesn't need to affect us at all. But we notice right here from the opening verses that what Paul is talking about here is, is, is affecting him down to the very hearts and depths of his life. I mean, it, it seems that that's what stands out to me, how, how great this weighs upon him. And, and so it would do us well to be leaning in and asking, what, 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 what does he mean? What is he saying in these verses? I, I want us to think this morning about um, this passage kind of under three headings uh, for us. The first one I want you to notice is Paul's unceasing anguish. His unceasing anguish. And we see there in verses 1 through 3 that it's for the Jewish people, his own kinsmen, who are rejecting the gospel. He writes in verse 1, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. That's a powerful testimony, isn't it? And, 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 and the way in which he describes this is, is unusual. We don't hear Paul talking like this in, in, in very many places. It's, it's designed, it seems, to persuade his readers about the depths of his heart, this anguish, his grief in this. First, he says, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. In other words, he's, his, his, he is conscious of Christ in him and, and he is, his presence with him. And so he's writing these words uh, with, that, with that presence in mind. In a sense, Paul, Paul is calling on Christ to bear witness to his words. And then he adds, I'm not lying. You're like, why does, he need to, why does he say that? Well, he's trying to bring emphasis to the first thing that he said, isn't he? You, you, you can make a strong emphasis by, by saying something negative. Um, sometimes when you want your, your children to walk, you say to them, don't run, right? Um, it, it, it's, it's adding emphasis. This is what Paul's doing. He's saying, I'm not lying. I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. Then he says, my conscience bears witness in the Holy Spirit. My conscience, again, is, is clear in saying this. In the presence of Christ, in the Spirit's presence in me, this is the truth. And then he shares that he has great sorrow and unceasing anguish in his heart. Literally, in the Greek, mega sorrow, mega sorrow, heart breaking anguish to the point of, of, of just causing him this, this distress and pain in his life. What is this? What's leading to this un, unceasing anguish? He answers in verse 3 For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. 
Now, now if you look at chapter 10, verse 2, he says the same thing, kind of, but he reframes it a little bit. He just says, brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them, that is the Jewish people, is that they may be saved. His burden and his grief is that his kinsmen, the Israelites, might be saved. And again, the language is, is, is quite remarkable. His grief is so great, his burden for them so heavy, we, we have to be careful. When you see the wording in the ESV, it's even kind of rough. We're trying to figure out exactly how to say this. But, but Paul says his burden is so heavy that the thought... Uh, perhaps the thought popped into his mind that, that if it were possible, if he himself could die for them, that they might be saved. Now, of course, that's not possible, and, and Paul has not said that, and, and, and not said everything that he said before this, right? That, that there's nothing that can separate us from the love of Christ. But he's simply trying to put into words the burden that he feels for his lost kinsmen. And the thought would come to him that, that, that if, if he only could be damned, that they could be saved. It's similar to Moses. You may remember back in... Exodus 33, I think, somewhere in there, when he pleads for Israel's forgiveness at Mount Sinai, you remember he says, God, just blot me out of the book of life. This is the unceasing anguish of Paul for the Israelites who are rejecting the gospel. And, and Paul's grief and, and anguish over the lost here, I think, is a great place for us to to pause and ask ourselves, do we share in his anguish for the lost? That's a big question, isn't it? Is there great grief in our hearts, unceasing anguish for the lost around us? It's a voice that gets to the heart of the matter, he says, the spirit that was in Jesus and Paul and Moses should be in each of us. If we would be soul winners, no one can die for another person's salvation. Jesus is the only one who could, and he did. But we can love as he loved, and we can point others to him. Do we share that same spirit, that anguish, over those who don't know Christ and who are perishing? Do you anguish over your kin, your kinsmen? Like Paul says here, those closest to you. You know, it's one thing. We have burdens for the lost to the ends of the earth, right? We think about those lost in India and China. We prayed for Syria uh, this morning. We, we pray, we support our missionaries. But what about your neighbor across the street? What about your coworker that you know is not a believer? And there's no doubt that Paul is burdened for those both near and far who don't know the gospel, but it seems that his burden is greater for those who are around him even. The burden, the burden with him begins with those who are nearest to him. What about your enemies? Do you anguish over their salvation? Does it burden you? I, I confess, sometimes I find more lately in these past few years that I'm often so appalled by the sinfulness that I see that I'm repelled. 
more than, than I am compelled to share the gospel with them. I know there's anger over the moral decline in our country, but are you praying for that which is the only solution, which is the salvation of souls by our great God? If we believe that the salvation of God is what our world needs the most, are we grieved enough to pray and to share the good news? Christopher Ashe, helping connect Romans 8 and 9 for us, has wise words. He writes this, Paul's grief is a sign that the glorious assurance of Romans 8, 31 through 39, ought never to make us inward-looking or complacent. When surrounded by a world, he says, that is cut off from Christ. Our love for others is measured by the depth of our sadness for their unbelief. And what we would, what we would be prepared to do to win them to Christ. Church, we should pray for this burden. We should pray that we have the heart of Paul here and Moses and Jesus and others who shared that same burden. Paul's grief over Israel's rejection of Christ is increased because of their un, Israel's unmatched privileges. That's the second thing I want you to notice. Is, again, it's one thing to have a burden for those who have never heard the gospel, and Paul had that. Romans 15, 20, he will say, I make it my ambition to preach the gospel not where Christ has already been named. But what, what was so grievous about his own kinsmen, he's writing here, is that they enjoyed so many of the benefits and blessings that pointed them to Christ. Notice how he frames it there in verse 4 and 5. He says, they are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. And yet having all of these blessings, they did not recognize that these were they're to point them to Jesus Christ. And it just increases Paul's grief and his burden for them. He lists eight of them there, um, just running back through them. The Israelites, he said, to them belong the adoption that has its roots all the way back to Exodus 4.22 uh, and other places where Israel was called God's son and he's called out of Egypt. Uh, to the Israelites, he says, belong glory. I think that's a reference to the tabernacle, which we talked about over our Christmas Eve and, and Christmas Day services, the, the glory of God that rested above it, the glory of God dwelling in their midst. Uh, and, and now John says, the word became flesh and tabernacled among them so that we would see his glory. The very glory of God is, is there, but Israel won't receive him. To the Israelites belong the covenants. So we think about the covenant with Abraham and Moses and David. Each of those covenants pointing to the one who is to come. Pointing to the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And yet they would not see the truth. To the Israelites belong the law, he says. The Ten Commandments. And uh, you remember Paul said in, back in Romans chapter 2 that if we truly understood the law... That we would see that, that we, we couldn't merit salvation by keeping that law. Again, it was meant to reveal our sin and to point us to the Savior who is Jesus Christ. The, to the Israelites belong the worship 
Or we might even say the temple worship. You know, they, they were the ones that were given instructions on how to please God and how to worship God and what sacrifices to, to bring and, and how, how they, they would point them. And those things pointed them to the atonement of Jesus Christ. But to them belong the promises, all of the prophecies, even with remarkable accuracy and detail of the coming of Jesus. They had the patriarchs, Paul said. They had Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and probably even, he meant beyond that, Joseph and Moses and Joseph and Samuel and and David and all of those people. Almost virtually all of them either predicted or foreshadowed in some way Jesus Christ. But perhaps the, the most stunning thing he says next, he says, as from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God. But Paul says from their lineage, the Messiah came. Jesus was Jewish from his mother Mary. He didn't just take on any flesh, but he he took on, he came through the Jews. And and that fact alone, he said, should have, again, pointed them to his gospel. So here is a heartbroken man, Paul, who's lamenting with John 1.11. He came to his own, Jesus came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. And it's broken his heart. It's bad enough that the Israelites missed the value of these privileges. But even more tragic, and the tragedy beyond description, is that they rejected Jesus, the Messiah, he says. Now this should give us great, again, great pause today. Because however tragic the Jews' rejection of Jesus may have been and is, think of the rejection by other people today. And and think of this how many years after Paul wrote this? Here we are, you know, a couple of thousand years roughly or so. Uh, and, and how many times the gospel, think of how it's been so widely proclaimed all across the, the planet and, and for many centuries. You think also about how, how many people have great advantages today, even some of you who are here. You, you have heard the gospel, you have had Christian parents, you've had Christian grandparents. You, you may have been to a, attended a Christian school. You may have been blessed to grow up in a church. You may, have even, you may even have church membership. But these things cannot save anyone any more than these privileges could save the Jews. Only Jesus Christ saves. Amen? And you can have all of these advantages in the world, but if you have rejected Christ... If you have said, I will not have him as Lord of my life, or if you've said, I'm just not ready to right now, both of those are rejections of Jesus Christ. And church, we should be filled with anguish over those who are rejecting him. Boyce once again writes this, to reject our words is nothing, but to reject Jesus is a loss of cosmic proportions. And so we proclaim Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. This is Paul's great burden, and it should be ours today. Now, I want to close with some underlying convictions, just a couple of them uh, to wrap up. Uh, Underlying convictions that are kind of underneath Paul's grief and burden here. And I hope that these things are some things maybe you'll think about and pray about uh, in your own life uh, and to help us to cultivate a burden for the lost. I'm sure there's more than two, but two are enough for us this morning. Uh, First, I think it's important to note Paul's conviction of the exclusivity of Jesus. The exclusivity of Jesus. That is, that that 
Paul's grief here, his burden here, is flowing from the conviction that Jesus is the exclusive only way anyone can ever be saved. For a brief moment, verse 3, he entertains the thought, only if I could be cut off from Christ, from, for the sake of my brothers, for my kinsmen. But Paul knows that that's not possible. He knows that there is no other way of salvation. The only way anyone can ever be saved is the fact that Jesus was cut off, accursed for us on the cross for our sins in our place, that we might be forgiven. This is the testimony of God's Word, church. Acts 4.12 says, there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Or John, uh, not 4, 6, but John 14, 6, I am the way, Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. There is simply no salvation apart from Jesus Christ. None. The gospel, he's already said, the gospel is the power of God for salvation. To everyone who believes, Jew first and also to the Greek, there are not many roads to God. And here's why I want you to think about this today and why this is so important, because the enemy, I think, has been sowing this idea for a long time now in our, our culture as a combatant to evangelism. Uh, that, that, that uh, telling us uh, over and over again, oh, that the gate to Christ is not narrow. Uh, that, that, the, that the way is actually broad, and there are many people on it. There are, there are many ways to salvation. There are many paths to God. We hear it all of the time, and we need to be quiet about our path to God, we are told. It's not only wrong, but it's, dis, it's designed to stifle our evangelism, you see. It's an intentional thing to, to cause us to not share the greatest news in the world the gospel. Jesus said, I am the way. You understand, he's saying, I am the way. I am the only way. The only truth. The only source of truth. The only truth. Truth personified. And no one, that means nobody, nobody anywhere comes to the Father, comes to salvation except through Him. It is a narrow way, and few find it. And church, that is why we must tell. It is why that if we believe this, if we believe that He is the only way, we will not be silent about this only way. We will, as Luke tells us, go out to the highways and the hedges and compel them to come to Christ. Such, such a conviction brings a burden with it. It, it brings a, a burden, and that burden leads to action. The fact that Jesus is the only way ought to increase our burden and grief for the lost. That's what's happening. That's an underlying conviction of Paul here. I think there's an, uh, another one that I want you to think about. And, and that is that, that Paul's burden and grief is reflective of a heart that has grasped the glory of the gospel. And this is kind of a broad one, but it's all over this text, isn't it? It's just there. I mean, these chapters in, in Romans 9 through 11 are not a parenthesis, in my opinion. They are, are not in a vacuum, but they are in a context. 
They're in a context of of his message here. We see here in Romans where all of this gospel truth should be leading us. And one thing is crystal clear in this passage. This gospel truth should not be making us apathetic and passive. If your theology is leading you to become cold and complacent and callous and and lukewarm and even quiet about the gospel, then it's not the theology of Paul, and it's not the gospel that Paul has been talking about here. This This is the, if my math is correct, this is the 50th sermon in in Romans today that we we are on and and if you have sat through these sermons and they have left you the 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 message of romans if if it has left you unchanged and unchallenged and unstirred in your spirit i ask you could something be amiss in your heart What effects should these truths have on us? What emotions and actions should be coming out of our lives? It's, it's certainly a mixture of joy, isn't it? We've experienced that in Romans 8 and the climax in many ways. But at the same time, there's great grief. There's great burden. Why? Because so many have not received the good news of Jesus Christ. We certainly rejoice in our salvation, but we're grieved that others do not. And and as we go deeper into the theology, and there's some deep theology coming up in there that's very difficult. Even even next week when we look at the doctrine of of election, such truth right from the beginning is framed. Such truth does does not turn us into the, the frozen chosen, if you will, but rather it breaks our hearts for those not saved. It motivates us to take the gospel to the lost. Please see it. It's right here. Here's the beginning. This important section of Romans. And Paul begins right here. Has not this gospel stirred you already in these ways? And if not, are you asking why? And are you praying? One thing that you could do in in, in terms of application um, is pick up one of these uh, little books uh, that we have available. It's called a Gospel Primer. And uh, it's a, a book that we're encouraging you to think about this month, at least adding to your already uh, devotional Bible readings. Um, there are 31 readings here about the Gospel and uh, with some introductory words as well, but 31 readings for 31 uh, days. And uh, here's a quote from uh, number 14. The more I rehearse and exult in gospel truths, the more there develops within me a corresponding burden for non-Christians to enter into such blessings. Isn't that exactly what we're seeing here? The more I rehearse and exult. Brothers and sisters, this is why we need to rehearse and exult in the gospel of Jesus Christ over and over and over again every day of our lives. We should never grow tired of this. Such glory should always be filling our minds and our hearts. And, and part of the reason is, 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 is to, to, to stimulate our worship. But another part of this is that a, 
we'll remember why he's left us here. It is the mission. And, and so as, as a point of application, I would encourage you to, to, to commit yourself to pray for this burden and, and commit to rehearsing and exalting in the gospel. This book will help you uh, to do that this month and uh, ask God to use you to be a witness for him. Now, if you're here today, this is the last thing, and you don't know him. Could it be today, could it be today that you would recognize all of the many privileges that you've had? All of these things, as you think about them, have you considered that all of the blessings, including the fact that you find yourself in the hearing of this good news today, could it be that all of these blessings has led you to this point in your life where you would come to Christ by God's grace won't you today won't you today turn to him as your lord and savior ask Jesus to save you ask him I'm confident he'll hear an answer. If you do that today, I would love to hear about it. And uh, I'll be down front and, and, uh, or in the back, and I would love to be able to have a conversation with you about it. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for these uh, opening words here in Romans 9 for this great section of, of Scripture. And we pray even now for you to do your stirring, renewing, reviving work in us. And may it start today as we think about Paul's great anguish for his lost kinsmen. We pray today as well, if there's someone or some here who do not know you as Lord and Savior, that today you, by your power of your Holy Spirit, that the scales would fall off their eyes, that they might see, that they might see Christ and all that he has done, his perfect life, his sacrificial death, his resurrection on the third day, and if they would put their faith in Jesus for salvation. We pray for them today. In Christ's name, amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast. I'm Pastor Jason Clark, and if you don't have a church home, I want to personally invite you to First Baptist Mount Washington. We're striving to be word-centered, gospel-focused, and community-minded. Learn more about our church and our meeting times from our website, fbcmw.org.